Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders Bristol and recorded at the Burst Radio Studios. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, Tom, Georgiana and I spoke of Dr. Steve Bullock, an aerospace researcher who plays a 12-foot-high robot in order to teach aircraft to refuel themselves. Steve also has a lecturing role and works on widening participation in engineering at the University of Bristol. As always, we started by asking him to introduce himself and talk a bit about how he got where he is today. I am Dr. Steve Bullock. I work in the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Bristol. I'm in the Dynamics and Control Research Group and the research that I've been involved with over the last few years uh, has been uh, my PhD work simulating formation flight using giant robots um, and more recently uh, focusing on, on on the education uh, side of the faculty, uh, school to university transition. I've got a, a background in school teaching so that's been a real asset to this um, and a lot of work with uh, student projects, um, extracurricular groups, uh, new facilities that we've, we've got in engineering and my my students' research projects at the moment uh, are, are in drone path planning and sustainable energy. Great. Okay. So yeah, it'd be great to talk first about your um, your technical kind of experience and, and your research. So what what specifically do you work on right now? You talked about um, uh, aerospace and uh, and planes, basically. What is what's the specific problem you work on, and why is it so difficult or technically challenging? I'm going to talk in the past tense a bit because that was my my, my, my main recent research is in my PhD work and I've been po- focusing on the education side of the faculty mm-hmm. for the last couple of years. Um, that was trying to solve the problem of automating air-to-air refueling, um, but that extends to other aspects of formation flight. Um, there's a, My personal drivers for it were, were environmental, but it's a bit further in the future, so I can go mm-hmm. into a bit of detail about that if you want. Yeah, sure. Maybe describe what air-to-air refueling is for a start. Yes. So um, air-to-air refueling is currently only done by the military. Uh, it's where you get a big tanker aircraft acting like a petrol station in the sky, uh, and then uh, receiver aircraft, whether they're fighters or other transport aircraft, come up behind it, uh, get fuel from it. There's there's two methods that are employed at present. Um, one is largely with the US Air Force, and they have a boom uh, that extends and plugs into the the top of the receiving aircraft, um, and all the work there is done by the boom op- operator in the tanker aircraft. Um, but the one that I was looking at is is used by uh, most of NATO, uh, definitely the UK, uh, and it's probe and drogue refueling, where uh, a big hose hangs out the back of the tanker. It's got uh, a drogue on the end that looks like a shuttlecock in in badminton uh, to to aerodynamically stabilise stuff. Um, that flaps in the breeze and the poor receiver pilot has to come and chase that and plug in um, and, uh, and, and do all the work his or herself. Um, it's, it's fairly dangerous. It's, it's one of the most dangerous things you can do, uh, apart from getting shot at in an aircraft, <laughs> because uh, you've got multiple aircraft in close proximity in the sky. And that's generally a really bad idea. If you looked out of the, the window of your plane taking you across the Atlantic and you saw... Uh, another passenger aircraft that close, you'd have a reason to be scared. We, we keep the miles apart for good reason. Um, and the precision that you need for aerial refueling 
um, is is to within a few centimeters if you want to capture the drogue effectively, hold position relative to the tanker. So um, that work was looking at the sort of sensors that we want to use and the sort of control algorithms uh, to, to, to do that best, whether you need sensors on both aircraft, whether the aircraft need to be talking to one another. Um, and we developed this fantastic facility uh, in, in the engineering building um, where we've got two big robots uh, in the basement. Uh, one's on a, a 10 meter track. They're both sort of 12 foot tall. Um, and uh, the, the, the one that's attached to the floor uh, pretends that it's, 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 got, it's got real flight refueling hardware on it uh, and, and, and waves the drogue about as if it's on the end of a hose attached to an aircraft at, at 20,000 feet. Um, and then the receiver one uh, whizzes up and down the lab um, and it's got a, a suite of sensors on it that we can connect in different ways, uh, use in different combinations. And, and they all feed into our simulated um, system so the aircraft and the atmosphere and the, the, the hose and uh, the pilots, if there are any, um, are, are all simulated. Uh, and then the, the, the sensors and the relative positions of the uh, receiver and the drogue uh, are, are all in the real world. So we've got this, this hybrid test system. And that allows us uh, both to uh, do things fairly cost effectively. Putting aircraft up isn't cheap. Uh, and also minimise the risk um, so we can uh, not have aircraft falling out of the sky over Bristol because we're trying something a bit new that we're not sure if it's going to work or not. Uh, it also allows us good repeatability so we can we can do the same thing over and over again and, and tweak things, which would be a lot harder with real aircraft. Uh, so that that's the core part of the research. Um, extensions to that, uh, if, if, if you can make it safe enough to put on passenger aircraft... Um, the case study that I referenced uh, said a, a London to Sydney long, long, long haul flight. Uh, if you do that in five hops, refueling each time as opposed to one hop, you use about a third of the fuel, which blew my mind until you think about it. If you're only going a fifth of the distance, you only need a fifth of the fuel, um, which means you can use a, a smaller aircraft with less drag. You don't have to carry all that fuel up. Um, and then that smaller aircraft with less drag will use less fuel. So you can have a smaller aircraft with less drag, so you can use less fuel. And the, the, the maths all spirals down. It's, it's the opposite of the rocket equation. If you need to take an extra kilo up, you might need an extra three kilos of fuel, but then you've got to take those three kilos of fuel up as well, so you need an extra nine kilos. And Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And um, I'd like to think one day it will be taken on to save the world. Um, the cynic in me thinks maybe it will just make flying cheaper and we'll just have the same <laughs> output. But... Uh, it's 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 fun work and, and and it links in with a lot of different interesting areas. This just sounds like something out of a science fiction movie. It just sounds so cool. <laughs> the robot rig. Yeah, the it, robot it rig. looks a bit like something out of a science fiction rig as well. I'll mm. I'll send you some pictures if you if you got some yeah, links in yeah. the blurb. In fact, if you, if you search for Bristol Relative Motion Robotics, then then you'll come across the research page. So it's not being used at the moment, is it? It's um, so the, 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 there was a big uh, second round of research uh, that us and the companies we were working with uh, were, were pitching for, uh, funded by the government, uh, and that uh, didn't didn't happen. So it's it's paused at the moment. But the robots are being used for other things, um, both research projects with the the groups that originally funded it, um, and and other independent work as well. The, the composites group. Um, part funded the the robots and they're they're looking at using them for complicated shapes layup with carbon fiber and mm -hmm. stuff.
Cool, that sounds great. So we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the research briefly, and then we'll move on to other things. But so, in you said that you may be cynical about the potential application of this. But say, in an ideal world, how would the world look if this technology was perfected? Would you have kind of tanker planes flying all over the world, and and everyone is in like small little pod planes that zip around uh, kind of and much more efficiently? How how does the world look if this reaches its conclusion? Well, that's that's quite a long way down the line, I imagine, but. Um... I mean, the, the way it works at the moment is is that um, different militaries around the world uh, send up tankers from uh, bases, uh, I guess, such as places like Cyprus. I, I don't know the, the details, and they probably wouldn't tell us if we asked. <laughs> um, so so they're, they're between where your your aircraft are based and, and where they want to get to. So so I imagine if you were going to extend that to a, a civil application, then, then you'd have areas where... Um, uh, a bunch of different flights go over and those areas would then become sort of refueling hubs and you'd be sending up aircraft from there and they'd they'd circle around above um that area and and, and you'd, you'd place them in useful places for for existing flight paths um the the other thing that you could enable if if, if you can do positioning to the accuracy that you'd want for refueling you can also do formation flight in a, in a really effective way um, and one thing uh, sort of a bio inspired application if, if you look at geese flying in a, a V they've been doing that for millennia right mm. um, and, and they uh, get an aerodynamic benefit from that it's um, sort of like slipstreaming behind a, a bike or a car or a, a lorry on the, the motorway um, uh, but you also get a, a lift benefit because you're sitting on the, the trailing edge vortex of the, the wing in front of you, whether it's a, a goose or a plane. Um, there's a Mythbusters episode where they, they tried this, and I think they uh, worked out. If you, if you can position yourself within about five centimetres uh, relative, uh, within about five centimetres of the optimal position, which is probably a few tens of metres behind and to the side of uh, the lead aircraft, uh, you can get about a 5% fuel gain, which is really big in aerospace. Airbus spend millions trying to get 1% drag saving, um, so, so the little numbers really add up. Um, and that's, a, that's another potential extension of the work, because it's the same problem. You're looking at really accurate positioning of one aircraft close to the other. And it's hard for a pilot to do manually because it's an unstable equilibrium. You let go of your stick and you slip off it, mm. so you wouldn't be able to do it for a seven-hour flight with a, a pilot manually controlling it. So. I like all of the, the potential useful environmental uses and, and, and the air industry is a, a big consumer of fossil fuels at the moment. So we've talked about what your PhD was in and your research. I would also like to know why you would want to do a PhD in the first place and why <laughs> why research is, is worth going into as, as, as an engineer if someone wants to make a difference in the world. I'm, I'm personally considering doing a PhD myself and I'd like to apply next year. Um, wh- why would someone do this and what's, what's kind of the potential career that you can get at as a result of doing uh, this kind of high level research? Okay. Um, if you'd have asked me during the middle of my write-up, I'd have told you to never think about doing it. It's the most horrible thing in the world, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it's all inspiration. Um, a lot of it is is a lot of perspiration. I, I think it's more about tenacity than anything else. Um, it's it's a very tough thing to do because quite often you're working on your own. Um, you, you're motivating yourself. You'll have a supervisor, but it's it's down to you to quite quickly. Uh, move from being told what to do to to pushing stuff yourself, and eventually you're going to be the lead in in the world on on that tiny area that you're you're working on. Um, so don't do it because you don't know what to do for the next three or four years. Um, do it 
if there's something that you really want to push for, if you want to extend the bounds of human knowledge, that's that's one of the requirements of a PhD. It's got to be novel. Um, if you want to um, extend your own skills in in both finding out where those boundaries are and then working out how to push it uh, in in the right direction. Um, and it's got to be something that you're passionate about. It's it's three, four, maybe more years of really hard slog all the way through. And there'll be ups and downs. You'll get to go to conferences and present your work to international researchers. And uh, they'll ask you tough questions. But but when you do something that's well received, it's really satisfying. You'll you'll be uh, publishing at conferences and, and hopefully in, in journal papers. And, and, and that's so satisfying. Again, it's a slog to get a journal paper out. Uh, my supervisor will tell you I'm the, I'm the worst at writing. Um, but um, uh, again, it's really satisfying to, to have something that you've um, sort of led on, something that's, that's, that maybe you've decided the direction it's going to go in, um, accepted by the, the international research community as, as being useful for the world to see. Um, so whatever you do it in, uh, you've got to be passionate about it. You've got to expect that it's going to be a big slog but that there's going to be a lot of opportunities um, and, and, and there's a lot that, that are up to you to seize. There's different pots of funding to go to different places, to do different things, to do different professional development courses, um, that it's, it's kind of down to you to direct. Um, there's a couple of different routes in. You can go for an independent PhD where uh, an academic has funding uh, either for one PhD or as part of a wider project. Um, I worked with two research assistants and another PhD student, so there were four of us plus our supervisor. Um, uh, and, and you just go straight in, uh, or there are uh, DTCs or CDTs, doctoral training centres, um, where it's slightly more structured. You might have a year of uh, sort of taught master's plus level work, uh, and then there's sometimes they do kind of speed dating activities where you get to meet all the supervisors mm-hmm. that are part of that research group and, 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 and collaborate on, on working out who you want to work with and what you want to work on. Um, now it's in the past, I'd highly recommend it. It's a great experience, um, but it's it's not for the, the faint of heart. Um, in terms of career opportunities, um, the the global stats are that there are more and more postgrads and a, a fairly fixed or slower increasing number of academic posts. It is pretty much a prerequisite for uh, going into academia, um, if you want to be a, a lecturer or a researcher. Um, but... There's also a lot of demand uh, in certain industries for, for postgrads. Uh, so it's it opens up some avenues, um, but it's it's not a prerequisite for a lot of grad careers. It, it would be a bonus, but maybe not an outsized one if you wanted to go into industry because mm-hmm. they conduct their own research as well and they collaborate with academia. Um, so what's the best way to put it? It's not a golden bullet. Um, much like a degree isn't these days either, but uh, but it, it, it adds a lot. I, my personal motivation was um, I was teaching science in London. Um, I was really enjoying it, uh, but my old master's supervisor that I'd kept in touch with uh, suddenly said, oh, there's, there's funding for a, a PhD playing with giant robots. Do you want to come and spend three years to do that? Um, and obviously I jumped at the, the chance, uh, but it, it wasn't really a planned thing for me. It was It was the next cool opportunity which pretty much defines my career <laughs> so yeah so you've talked about your own kind of experience of navigating the world of education and, and your own interests 
so you have this additional role at university, which is, I guess, is about helping other people to navigate their own education. So what, what are your other roles at university and um, kind of what are the strategies that you're taking to improve education at the university? So I do a lot of work um, on uh, improving the resources, the structure and the practice um, of, of how we teach engineering. There's a lot of people uh, on, on that side of the faculty, uh, the faculty education director and the school education directors do sort of coordinate that. Um, but I've worked on uh, introducing dynamic lab manuals for engineering. They've been really successful in chemistry. Um, and it, it's a, an activity before and maybe after a lab uh, that you do uh, on our online learning system, um, which hopefully it's, it's intended to prep you for the lab um, so that you know how to use the equipment, you know the health and safety side of things, you know how the theory links to what you're doing, um, so that you can dive into the lab and and get more hands-on time, and it frees up the lab demonstrators to ask probing questions to support students better. Um, so there's a whole lot around that tool in terms of uh, how we train and support the lab demonstrators, how we uh, structure things for the for the students. Um, but ideally, it'll it'll help students get the most value out of the in-lab time as they can. Other big things that I'm looking at on the teaching side of things, we're doing uh, some work across the, the school and the faculty uh, on uh, taking advantage of, of where things are similar between different courses. The, the, the physics and the maths that you learn on, on pretty much any of our courses are all uh, mostly based on the Newtonian side of things, the material stuff's based on fundamental chemistry. So, so where we can um, pool our efforts and, and, and produce higher quality resources, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether bigger teaching groups uh, are, are the way forwards. Eng Maths teaches on, uh, on, on quite a big scale, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of the um, sort of specific disciplines need specific examples. So, for example, aerospace is very weight focus so you go for lightweight slender structures and civil engineering um, apologies to any civil engineers uh, but you just pour more concrete in as, as, as far as my understanding goes um, but the, so there's different design drivers different materials so, so we, we need to tailor for those disciplines but but there's certainly in the early stages of the the first years of the courses that there's a lot of commonality that we can harness um, and and it could even foster interdisciplinarity so so I'm part of some of the groups that are, are working towards that. Um, and then uh, about half of my role is widening participation officer for the Faculty of Engineering. So uh, coordinating and supporting how we um, get the word out to uh, everyone about how wonderful engineering is, how wonderful engineering at Bristol is, uh, broaden the diversity of our student intake um, and support a diverse range of students once they're here as well. There's a there's we, we've got a responsibility to ensure that everyone that that we say can come on the course because we think they're capable of of, of doing as well as we want them to are supported uh, again certainly through that school to university transition mm-hmm. stage, which is different for everyone depending on where they've come from, their experiences, that sort of stuff. So, how successful has Bristol University been in widening participation this year? We're doing pretty well compared to. Uh, the targets the government sets us and the sometimes more stringent targets that we set ourselves. Um, engineering in particular is is still fairly non-diverse on the gender side of things. So um, we uh, support things like um, International Women in Engineering Day uh, and, and, and other 
uh, outreach activities like that. We had a really good International Women in Engineering Day activity last year where we got a load of primary school students to come into the Arnolfini and meet a load of engineers um, and uh, had, had some really good activities there. Um, but, but there's always always more room to improve. The, the demographic of uh, students at most Russell Group Union is, is, is nowhere near the demographic of, of UK-wide students. Um, and so we, we focus on addressing that inequality. And there's, there's a lot of fundamental reasons for it, which stretch far beyond um, the, the university. Um, and, and, and there's decisions to be made as to what our remit is and, and how far we stretch. So, for example, I, I think a, a, a large part of the uh, university access discrepancy is down to aspiration. If people don't have role models uh, in their communities, um, uh, in their schools, in their experiences, then then uh, a lot of young people might not even think that university is an option for them. Um, so we have teams of students and of staff that go out uh, and, and, and try and address that in different ways. Um, and it's, it's deciding where to focus our efforts to be most effective on that. That's the, the biggest challenge there. How difficult do you think it would be to make changes to the current process of teaching and lecturing in our university? You mean the, the, the way that we teach and the yeah, way that students yeah. learn? I think it would be like very, very difficult to make changes in the way students like perceive the information mm-hmm. and to like be able to improve it. It's a tough one to answer because we've already made... If, if, if I compare how I experienced Bristol Uni as an undergraduate um, 18 years ago now um, to, to the way things are today, there's, there's so much change and we've got uh, some new amazing facilities that have opened and we've also got uh, staff all across the faculty and the uni trying new ways of teaching, new ways of doing things. Um, I think that um, it would probably be fair to describe that there are a lot of pockets of good practice around the university. Um, And one of the priorities for the faculty and the uni uh, now is to share that and to make sure that all of our uh, student-facing staff are aware of the choices and the options and the the new ways of doing things that are available to them. But it's still down to the individual unit directors, the individual teaching staff to decide what's best for that content and what's best for their group of students. Um, so the the challenge is, is sharing that info and then supporting um, colleagues in implementing stuff. It's, it's not an easy thing to restructure a unit or to bring in a new teaching method, um, particularly not if you've been doing the same thing for, for a long time. Um, I personally feel that lecturing uh, in, in the old school, you might call it a chalk and talk sense, has its place. There's a there's a lot of um, benefit, I think, to students to being in a room with someone telling them inspirational stuff, and then um, showing them in real time how to how to go through uh, all the tough problems that that we put you through. Um, but there's also um, it, it's also a fairly inefficient content delivery mechanism for for some forms of content. So. I find it very frustrating to to teach uh, reams and reams of derivations when um, we're limited on the time that we have with students um, and um, it, it, there's a lot of nitty gritty that you've got to get people to grips with and I, I often feel like I've left students with their heads reeling and they need to go away and post-process everything and go through it all again. So one of the benefits of, of recording lectures is that you can go through that and you've got a pause button. But I wonder if, uh, and I'd be interested to hear your 
uh, take mm-hmm. on it. I, I wonder if um, uh, pre-recording that sort of stuff is is beneficial and, and, and then dedicating the time that we have in our face-to-face sessions to more interactive activities mm-hmm. is better. I, I don't want to turn everything into examples classes, but um, I've tried a bit of, they call it flipped classroom teaching, mm-hmm. um, and, and I can take a 50-minute um, sort of structures, derivations lecture and condense it into maybe three or four, five-minute videos because I don't have to repeat myself and check understanding and I can I can trust that you can use the pause and rewind buttons to go over stuff when you need to. And then that frees up that hour um, for much more back and forth. And that actually, I, I think changing students' expectations and habits in that is, is as hard as changing staff. When I, <laughs> when I say, right, we're going to be talking to each other a lot this lecture, it's often like breaking down a brick wall. Um, and I think students learn to expect that from me after a while, but... Um, certainly expecting to be able to come to a lecture with a hangover and sit down and shut up and just let it all wash over you is is, is something that I want to challenge um, and if if students feel like the the media site the replay recorded lectures are a good substitute for turning up to my lectures I feel like the onus is on me to add more value in those sessions. It's an interesting thing you mentioned about lack of interaction in lectures. I think almost everyone in that lecture wants the lecture to be more interactive, but there are people sat there in the audience who don't feel capable of asking a question or they feel nervous because they're in front of 300 people or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I've had this experience myself. Like, I actually wish all our lecturers were back and forth and people were asking questions. And I think almost everyone would prefer it to be that way. But there's this, some psychological thing that's stopping people, particularly in younger years, I think, of university, mm-hmm. um, for asking those questions. And it, 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 a solution to that would be very interesting well there's a lot of sort of embedded habits that the lecturers and students have um but but there's ways of challenging them and, and there's simple skills that you can use to, to help that so for example um one thing that i do when i'm asking students questions is is if i have time i go for a, a think pair share approach a bit, bit of a sort of gimmicky way of of, of saying it but I, that's what a secondary teaching uh, qualification gets you it's 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 um something that's obvious to secondary teachers but but our um academics uh, our academics get teacher training to a certain extent but but not not to the to the extent that, that school teachers do but then it's a different environment so uh for example instead of posing a question um waiting five seconds and when i get when i get no hands up then just giving the answer and moving on um, you give the students a, a minute to think and write their ideas down, a minute to talk to someone next to them, and then you ask them to share their responses. And without fail, you get a much better response uh, doing that because it's it's difficult. If you're in a lecture theatre with a couple of hundred people in it, putting your hand up and putting yourself out there when you might be wrong is really difficult. And one of the best ways of learning is, is learning by making mistakes. Um, and if if I don't get responses from students that show their misconceptions, it, it hinders my ability to bring the learning on and to support the the diversity of, of progress in the room. Also, during that thinking and pairing session, I can I can wander around and eavesdrop and, and pick up a lot there as well. So you mentioned the number of students being quite intimidating maybe for them to ask questions. Do you think the future of lecturing could be having smaller classes or bigger classes or what do you think? I'm going to jump around a little bit. In, in other areas of the university, a lot of the learning is very seminar focused um, uh, and that's a quite a high intensity, high contact time um, use of the resources that we've got. Um, and I think there's room for more of that in engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if we can, uh, I mean, we, we've got a fixed 
amount of time that we have with you, even if we taught you 8am till 6pm every day. So we've got to be as efficient as we can. Um, so if we can devolve some of the stuff where I say the same thing every year in the same way to replacing that with a video, because I might as well be, um, and then have more time for some some small group stuff, um, I, th I think that would be beneficial. But again, it's it's changing habits and and and... Uh, when I do small group stuff with students, often it's it, it's difficult to know how to um, make it as productive for the students while making it less uncomfortable as well. Mm. Um, but I, I think a lot of that's down to the culture of learning that we have. Um, and I, th I think we're pretty good at that. But um, just, just making sure that everyone knows when they're being assessed and when they're being collaborated with. And I, I want to chat with students. I want to hear what they're struggling with the mistakes that they're making and it's not going to affect your grades at the end of the year because that's all quite a well-defined process and, and um, knowing where students are at helps me teach better. And I'd definitely put my support behind the flipped classroom idea. I think I think that would work very well for me. In terms of things like derivations in these complex maths that get delivered basically in every university, I find that there are certain lecture courses, some of the, I don't know, the top lecturers in the world who you might find at MIT... Um, I find some of those lectures, um, they always help for me. And I think they help for an awful lot of other people as well. And maybe it doesn't make sense for thousands of people to be delivering that same content. And I would also love to have seminars as well yeah. to talk about concepts in more depth, either technical things or the wider implications of engineering. That's what gets people excited yeah. um, talking about those things. So, yeah. You're totally right. And, and, and there's, I mean, there's only so many ways of, of teaching something. Um, when I was teaching A-levels, um, I, I used to get my sixth formers to watch some of the sort of first year physics courses from MIT that they put online. And it was a fantastic resource. And the guy was a far better teacher mm. than I'll ever be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they've taken them down since because of some controversies. But uh, <laughs> um, it, it's a really good resource. And, and um, examples in the university, um, economics uh, have collaborated with universities across the world to make an online textbook called Core Econ that anyone can use. It's got economics rock stars from around the world um, talking about their careers, talking about the concepts, presenting different things. It's got interactive uh, graphs and stuff, and it, it, it flips the way that it's taught on its head because enough people around the world that are experts on economics teaching have got together and said, what's the best way of doing this? Maybe what we've been doing isn't the right way. Um, Prof Alvin Birdie, who's who's one of the educational leaders of the university, um, uh, was was intimately involved with that, and now it's used on economic courses across the world. Um, and I, I think there's probably scope to do that in sciences, engineering, mathematics, um, but it's tough because everyone feels a lot of ownership over their teaching. It's quite a personal activity. It's very hard to teach from someone else's lesson plan, um, but collaborating, taking advantage of, of experts around the world is, is a really good idea um, and, and ultimately better for the students. Yeah, in terms of widening the participation of students in like certain activities like the women in engineering things, what do you think that the particular challenges would be? I'm, I'm wary of speaking for everyone here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my impression of it from a lot of conversations that I've had. Uh, please feel free to tweet or email me if you disagree with this and I really want to hear everyone uh, everyone's point of views on it. Um, and you can challenge me as soon as I finish talking if you want. <laughs> um, so I think that there are uh, discrepancies, uh, inequalities, barriers um, at 
multiple levels in someone's educational and aspirational development. And, and, and from an early age, a lot of it depends on role models. Um, from uh, an educational standpoint, um, we've got massive um, discrepancies in, in the quality of education uh, that kids across our country uh, receive. Um, and these things compound over time. So uh, a, a tiny discrepancy. And, I, and I, I don't think there are many, if any, people that are saying, right, I want to keep women out of engineering. <laughs> or I, I don't think that uh, underprivileged uh, children should, should, should receive a, a good education. Um, there's so much work being done for, uh, to, to address those, those uh, disadvantages. Um, but the, the, the result is we add up to, to uh, 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 the, the world that we have at the moment, which, which has um, differences in the proportion of people in these uh, careers and, and, and university courses and, and the, the uh, demographic of, of people in the wider world. Um, questions that are really hard to answer, that I don't have a perfect answer for, are, um, first of all, what should we do in terms of uh, changing people's preferences, aspirations, that sort of thing? If, if, if you um, have an aspiration to... Uh, okay, let's let's be stereotypical for, for for the sake of clarity. If you have an aspiration to uh, be a mother, start a family, or if you have an aspiration to work in um, uh, an industry that's that's seen as being more for one sort of person than another person, if that's your aspiration, who am I to come and challenge that? Who am I to say you should think about engineering, even if you currently don't want to do it? Um, so that there's a real that there's a real subtlety to that in terms of, of, of what we do and, and, and how we do it. Um, and I like to think of it as presenting alternatives and opportunities to people of all ages, because this sort of thing starts at a very young age. Um, and then there's questions about what our remit is as a, a higher education organisation. Where, um, where do we see our responsibility starting and stopping? And you could say it, it's, it's just at the admissions process. That's, that's where students come to us. That's our first official contact with them. Um, and if we're going to do that, then we'll say, right, well, we'll just go on your A-level grades. We want you to get two A-stars and A if you want to come onto this sort of highly contested course. Um, or we could say we want to take into account the wider world and the wider qualities of a student. I, I don't think you can encapsulate someone's academic potential in three A-level grades mm -hmm. at all. Um, but that's a much harder thing to do. Um, so uh, Bristol has for a long time been a pioneer in um, contextual offers for students. We have um, the ability to, to flex our offers depending on um, the demographic that a student comes from. We, we look at the wider data and also the individual circumstances of students and I think that's a good thing because if and, and again no offense to anyone on the other end of this analogy but if you've come through a very tough period of your life or entire life um, and and slogged your way through to to some good A-level grades I think that shows a lot of um, uh, qualities that, that I want our 
engineers to have both both to, to come in with and both and, and then to improve on uh, and, and the sort of graduates that that, that we, we produce uh, should have um, but then you don't want to disadvantage the other end I, I I think equal opportunity is the way to go but but it's it's hard to define that particularly when we're working at the scale we are and, and you need to go on a lot of numbers um, I think I've got that across right again please I'm, I'm sure there's there's lots of nuance to it that I can be challenged and I like having these discussions mm. what do you guys think I think it's a really great idea that Bristol's been giving out all these contextual offers and I think I've read somewhere that research shows that they go on to achieve basically the same grades as everyone else so it's really important that universities give everyone a chance like a fair fighting chance to show everything the true potential there's, there's there's a few examples i can mention so um i'm currently looking at entry routes uh, to engineering courses for students from non-a level backgrounds so access courses btech courses um mature career switches that sort of thing and that's something that traditionally bristol uni and a lot of our russell group counterparts aren't aren't used to dealing with um but I've I've uh, seen admitted supported uh, students from those backgrounds and, and seen them do very very well. I've also seen them struggle uh, with a, a change in teaching style, um, a, a gap in what our current expectations are and and their um, educational uh, content experience so far. Um, so if if we do uh, broaden our admissions routes, apply contextual offers, that sort of thing. Um, we have a remit to supporting those students through uh, to success in their course as well. Um, and, and, and that's, that's again, again, a large part of, of, of what we do in engineering across the university. I think it gives me quite a lot of confidence that people like you are working on this problem. It's kind of easy, easy to forget <laughs> when you're in the education process that there are a lot of people thinking about how it can be made better and progress is, has to be slow in such a large kind of institution. But um, all the people are asking the right questions, which is great. So... I think it's really easy to criticise, but it's mm. such a nuanced problem and everyone in it is is working in the way that they think is best. So so I think it's important to have a discussion about these sorts of things and, and try and understand all sides of it. And it's, it's a tough one to keep everyone. I, I think it's impossible to make everyone happy. So if I've got as many people on one side of it bashing me as I have on the other side, I'm probably doing an OK mm. job. And there's a lot of stuff going on in the wider world um, related to that. There's, there's so many really exciting engineering achievements that have happened in, in the last few months even. And we're in the year of engineering now uh, when, when there's, there's lots of things that are going to be happening, hopefully to draw more people in. Uh, now, in terms of space exploration, like in general, um, what would your views on that be? Like what's your impression? What do you think can be improved? What do you think that current students can do towards that? Okay, Um Let's start broad and go narrow. Uh, philosophically, I'm slightly torn. I love space. I love understanding the universe. Uh, looking back, if I didn't do an aerospace engineering undergrad, it might be something like physics with astrophysics because I find that fascinating and I love teaching it at A-level. Um, there's a lot of investment needed in going out to uh, just to orbit, let alone the, the moon, the planets, the stars. Um, and one... Uh, thing that is said a lot is why don't we focus on our problems on the ground first because there's so much um, uh, sort of inequality around the world that, that needs addressing there's so much uh, poverty disease that, that we're doing work on but there's always room to do more there um, 
Or you can take a step back and uh, paraphrase people like Elon Musk that say, well, there are some large existential risks to humanity, to, to life on this planet, and it's the only planet that we know that has life. Um, so maybe we should preserve that. Um, and and uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX's uh, goal of colonizing Mars and, and making humanity a multi-planet civilization um, is, is, well, by, by his uh, sort of logic, is is saving us from even bigger disasters such as asteroids, nuclear war, um, global disease or famine of, of, of some sort. Um, and, and so if humanity wants to last a billion years, um, we need to become interplanetary. And Musk, Hawking, lots of people like that um, talk along those lines. I, I think there's a balance needed and you can criticise investment in, in all sorts of things, let alone space exploration. Um, so the, the sort of fundamental philosophy behind it, I, I, I like, I like thinking of, of humanity as, as enduring. Um, I can also see that, well, if we, if we mess this planet up, we don't deserve another one argument. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, 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 I like, uh, sort of thinking long-term and, and, uh, listen to Carl Sagan's pale blue dot speech. If you, if you want to hear someone much better than me sort of talking about that and the, the big picture, um, in terms of, of what it means today, there's there's some really, really amazing work being done. Um, the Did you guys watch the Falcon Heavy launch? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sat with uh, another podcast buddy of mine in uh, the Cosmic Shed, quick plug, um, and, and, and we watched it there. Uh, and, and there was definitely a bit of swearing because it was just amazing to watch. Um, to, so the Falcon Heavy is the, the biggest rocket now in service today. It's not the biggest rocket ever. That was the Saturn V, but... Uh, um, we now have this capability of, of, of taking things out to Mars orbit, as, as has been seen. Um, and I also, I really, really love the fact they've gone for a silly test payload. So normally for that sort of thing, you'd use concrete blocks or something like that. Um, if you're boring NASA or whatever, no offense, NASA, um, <laughs> um uh, low risk NASA, maybe, I don't know. Um, but for those of you who, who haven't haven't heard, then um, a couple of months ago, uh, someone tweeted Elon Musk and said, what's the test payload for the Falcon Heavy going to be? And everyone thought he was joking when he replied, my midnight cherry red Tesla Roadster playing David Bowie's Space Oddity on loop. And then someone tweeted back saying, with a copy of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in, and, a, and a towel in the glove box. And, and he, he only went and bloody did it, didn't he? Um, I, I think it's 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 really silly um, but also really inspirational. It's it's definitely got media attention from from both sides. Like ooh, we're littering space with with cars, we might as well be littering space with concrete, right? Um, it's a massive investment in resources, um, but it's an inspiration for a lot of people. Every school kid that I talk to now is, is like, oh, I want to go work as a, a rocket scientist, whatever that means. I mean, aerospace engineer is probably the closest, but there's there's physicists, there's systems engineers, there's all the people. In that industry, and that's going to grow and grow. Um, there's there's other new rocket companies uh, up and coming. Rocket Lab in New Zealand has has um, done a test payload launch of the Humanity Star as well, which um, is a, a carbon fiber shiny object that you can see glinting in the sky if you look at the right time. Um, there's obviously a risk of, of of cluttering up near Earth orbit and having this. It's called the Kessler syndrome, where you get one satellite that explodes and then it takes out another one, takes out another one. It's, um, happened in gravity didn't it the film 
Um, so, so we need to carefully manage all of our amazing advances. But I, I think that the space exploration and, and the other um, sort of big priorities for humanity are, are inspirational. And there's the, the global goals um, that, that can help us target our work. I think we need to look big at that, but we also need to look small at the, the work um, that lots of research institutions are doing, lots of humanitarian ones, lots of societies like Engineering Without Borders. Um, uh, are working on so so look at the big aspirational stuff but also don't forget the the human scale stuff for space exploration do you think humanity will ever be at the point where we can freely roam among the planets and if so do you think that there's a possibility for extraterrestrial life um it's not my field of expertise Um, i'm very much sort of control systems and and predominantly earth-based stuff but I, i do keep tabs on development i think at the moment the the current technology we have uh, makes it uh, that it takes so long to get between the stars that that is currently a, a distant, uh, a distant dream. And and uh, if you went if you went at the speeds that are currently attainable, you'd need to have multi generation rocket ships going going to places. Uh, if we have some fundamental breakthroughs in in physics and engineering, then I'd love to see Star Trek happen. Um, I think at the moment um, the uh, th- there's no doubt that we're going to have space tourism in the next 20 years, probably sooner, as, as a fairly regular, almost affordable thing. Um, again, looking in that sort of time scale, I'd probably say it's a fairly safe bet there'll be another human being on the moon within 20 years. But people was, people have been saying that for the last 60 years. Uh, and then and then humans on Mars. I mean, that that's very realistic. Uh, beyond that, yeah, I, I, I think we need some, some real... Um, difficult decisions on, on how we do it, whether whether we wait for the tech to uh, improve or whether we, we go for the uh, sort of solutions that are available to us at the moment. You look at something like The Martian, um, uh, the, the book and the film, and that's, that's all things we can do now. It's, it's just the uh, financial, the political will to make it happen uh, it hasn't, hasn't been there for a long time. Um, it's going to be interesting uh, now you've got uh, was it SpaceX, Blue Origin, um, Rocket Lab, a load of other private space entrepreneurial companies uh, to, to see whether we're going to get another space race and what the drivers in it are going to be. Um, I'd like to see it. And again, you, you look at sort of the millennia scale and you, you, you talk about things like Dyson spheres and harnessing the entire energy of stars and the, the, the levels of civilization. I, I, I love talking about that as well, um, but, but it might, might be a bit beyond the scope of my direct field there's probably better people to talk about that yeah I, I, I think we're kind of reaching the end of the time that we've got available but I think the the point you touched on when talking about SpaceX that this kind of aspirational goal for engineering and science in general is is just such an inspirational thing for people for young people as well like you talked about the people who say they want to be rocket scientists I wish they knew that that meant they want to be engineers <laughs> and hopefully it will translate into that but yeah, in the in the present world, there's no better way, I think, to inspire people and, and widen the participation in engineering, which is obviously your focus, than things like space exploration, things like the development of artificial intelligence, even climate change, if framed correctly. Mm. So, I don't know, I, I believe, I'm sure you agree, that, like, in a way, we've got an amazing opportunity here to uh, in, inspire people into, into this career and, and kind of change the world and... and I can solve all these problems. Yeah. yeah, there are there are small scale and large scale inspirational projects going on everywhere you look now. Mm-hmm. There are role models of all uh, ages, genders, races, uh, backgrounds, all of the other 
criteria that, that I've missed out of that list uh, to, to take inspiration from. Um, and we as an institute at the University of Bristol and the sector as a whole are getting much, much better at sharing what we're doing, shouting about what we're doing, putting it out in a format that's that's accessible and interesting to to as wide a base of people as possible. So I am uh, working on and hope to see uh, more widely uh, all of these things come to fruition. Uh, watch out for exciting developments from, from engineering in the near future. We're doing some collaborations around the city. Um, uh, it's been announced now that we're uh, a trailblazer partner for the new Ardman and Grand Appeal uh, Wallace and Gromit trail so there's some exciting stuff coming out there which I'm currently under a non-disclosure agreement about <laughs> um, what else have we got going on the um, I'm currently talking about some plans with our um, uh, space student space society uh, about doing some schools work and some festivals work uh, you'll, you'll see some stuff coming out there um, I, I've been meaning to start blogging about it but watch watch the uni news pages for now because mm. um, we'll make sure that that's all going to be uh, press releases but uh, yeah watch this space yeah amazing so the sounds like the future is bright not just at bristol but across the world in engineering as well which is great so yeah steve thank you very much for joining us on the podcast uh, it's been really great uh, uh, we talked about basically everything that we wanted to cover so that's fantastic yeah cheers for coming on absolute pleasure thanks for having me thank you if you enjoyed this week's episode of ingenious please subscribe and share the podcast with friends we'd also love to hear your feedback to get in touch or to find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud. Online. Not on FM. And certainly not on digital. This is Burst Radio. Bristol University's radio station. Radio station. Radio station. Radio station.